So, um, title of today's message is uh, "It's Never Too Late," and um, I'm glad we had a chance to read read it all the way through because um, we're not going to just read it through line by line um, as we go through it here now. But I'll move to it and, and talk through um, some of the verses here. But um, it's never too late to begin leading our families. And it's never too late to begin doing what God wants us to do. Um, or maybe another way to say this is it's never too soon to start doing what God wants us to do. And uh, today we're going to see that sin is messy. Um, and when sin gets entangled into our lives, uh, the lines get jagged, and it's not always easy to know what the next step is or what the next three steps are. And you know, I like, hold this whole time, but actually, yeah, I feel more comfortable holding something. So, <laughs> uh, so we can be well intentioned to walk with the Lord, but but um, as you all know, we still take missteps and we tend to hurt those that are close to us, because even though we are trying to walk with the Lord, things don't always turn out the way we like. Um, for example, right after I came to faith in Christ, um, I was so excited, and I felt like a two-ton uh, load of guilt had just been taken off my back, and I began telling people about it um, immediately. But I had not known about verses like Proverbs 19.2 that says, uh, even zeal without knowledge is not good. Or Proverbs 15, too, that says the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. So needless to say, it's, it's, uh, it's not that my message or enthusiasm were lacking, uh, but I guess you could say I was not wise in my bedside manner, and the result was that I had some missteps and damaged some relationships, not because of the message itself, but because of the delivery of the message. Um, and so here in Genesis 31, we're going to see Jacob attempting to lead his family, which is something that we haven't really seen up to now. And it's a very real situation where we'll see the effects of sin and how they will impact the entire situation. And I think by the end of this, you might be able to empathize with Jacob, or at least I hope so, in that if you've tried to lead your family, or you've tried to do what God wants you to do and step out in faith, and your experience does not always match your expectations. Um, things don't always fall into place or go right according to um, what your definition of going right looks like in your mind. And that would be Jacob's testimony today, uh, in hindsight, uh, from our point of view. But there is hope and help for us in this passage today. So we're going to break down this passage into six scenes. Um, the first scene comes here in verses 1 through 3. And just for review, uh, we learned that Jacob got to Padanaram because he was only run from his brother Esau. Uh, the original plan was to only stay for a little while. Uh, in fact, some translations uh, even use the words a few days. Uh, but as it turned out, Jacob was such a successful, smooth negotiator, um, he wanted one girl for seven years and ended up with four girls for 20 years. And three of them he didn't really want. Uh, but last week we learned how God began to prosper him materially, and uh, Jacob even referred to that in this passage today. So Jacob begins to be blessed by God, and God is clearly fulfilling his promise to Jacob. And it's at this point in time that God is beginning to work on him. 
But I want us to notice that God's calling does not come until after Jacob hears this disconcerting rumor. So Laban's boys were out there around town spreading this message that Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And then Jacob also begins to notice that his father-in-law's demeanor towards him is altogether different than it was before. So apparently, the first 14 years, they had a pretty good relationship, uh, or as good as one could go with a father-in-law. And uh, Jacob, I mean, Laban loved having Jacob around, of course, because he was free labor uh, for 14 years. And he also was a pretty good uh, herdsman and farmer, I guess. And uh, Laban's flocks were prospering. But then as that wealth began to shift from Laban's to Jacob's, Laban's attitude began to sour, and um, obviously Jacob began to uh, see some obvious cues and countenance uh, changes in Laban's, uh, you know, appearance. So right now, at this moment, it's important to note that the Jacob that we've all come to know and love over the past few uh, weeks would have started scheming. Okay. That's how we've been accustomed to seeing Jacob respond um, up until now. And we're not much different, right? You know, you hear a rumor like that about yourself, as untrue as it might be, and you see somebody's attitude towards you change altogether. And for many of us, the first thought that springs into our minds um, is how can I begin to manipulate these circumstances so that I can fix it? How can I begin to influence people, get people on my side, influence them right or wrongly so that I can regain control of the situation? But here, Jacob does something altogether new for him. He listens to the Lord, and he begins listening to God. And God's call comes to him here in verse 3, which says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. This is a moment of breakthrough for Jacob. So he doesn't have to be the one who has to manipulate the situation to make it all turn out right. He's looking to God. God tells him to get up and move, and so he begins to start to move his family in the right direction. And we see that God's call came with a promise, and it came uh, with a confirmed blessing. So God had been prospering him materially, and now God is affirming to him, Jacob, I'm going to be with you in this. You have no reason to fear and so Jacob begins to take up the mantle of leadership in his family. So I think as, uh, as we've seen from this scene one, the key takeaway, I would um, paraphrase it in this sentence, God calls his people to their responsibility to follow him through circumstances and through his word. What I mean by that is that you experience God using circumstances in your life to expose areas of weakness, or perhaps to wake you out of a slumber, just going through the motions. And um, perhaps, you, you know, when you're not viewing circumstances through the lens of God's will, your immediate response is to make attempts to get things back to the status quo as quickly as possible. At work, we call this to work around. Now, it's not bad at work because, you know, something's out of control and you want to work around it to get it back in control, okay? But in our relationship with God, God may be bringing a circumstance in your life, and we try to do a workaround to get back to normal, but without 
bring God into the picture, he might be saying, like, I didn't want you to do a workaround. I was bringing that circumstance in your life to redirect you here and make a change in your life that I was coming to do. But in this situation, perhaps it was Jacob's awareness of me that made him receptive to God's voice. And I think that's the ultimate place to be. Um, I love the verse in James because um, um, it obviously talks about trials, but right after it talks about trials, it talks about praying for wisdom. And my understanding of that verse is that what God is trying to say is, look, um, when you have trials in your life, I'm doing them for a purpose. And so you need to be asking me to open your eyes and ears to see why, how I'm wanting to use those trials to guide you and to direct you, as opposed to just having this fatalistic view of like, oh, got some trials happening to me. Let's just print it here until, you know, things get back to normal. Now, the other trap that we don't want to fall into, you know, as you read this this morning, is to have this kind of thinking. Well, if God appeared to me in a dream like he did to Jacob and made this so crystal clear to me, then I know I would rise up and leave my family and do whatever God would want me to do. Well, I guess my response to that would be what the writer of Hebrews chapter 1 says. And that is that God used to speak in those kinds of ways, but those are inferior ways of how God communicates up to us today. Um, now we have the Son, and now we have the Word of God. We have the Word of God incarnate, and we have the Word of God in this book. And if you just think about it honestly, we possess 10,000 more times the amount of revelation that was available to Jacob at that time. So we have all we need to start moving forward. The second scene involves Jacob getting his wife on board. Jacob's problem here is that he has not really been leading his family up to this point in spiritual matters. And he has a couple of wives that he needs to agree to go with him, and they might not be so inclined to do so. Uh, and so Jacob, very wisely, does some covert operations here. Um, you know, if you live in a tense society at that time, uh, having private conversations are only as private as the sickness of your tent walls. So, uh, so Jacob goes out in the field and he sends his servant to find Rachel and Leah and tell them to come secretly and come out to meet him in the field so he can kind of begin to unveil this plan. And in verses 5 through 13, Jacob begins to deliver what is no doubt a reverse speech. Um, it's got all the appearance of a speech he's gone over many, many times in his head. And he's got his points ordered from descending to ascending. And he's going to close with a flourish on his final point. Um, many of you guys might be able to identify with his strategy here. Um, in that, uh, you know, when you're wanting to talk to your wife about something, and you have this big thing that you want to kind of get her on board, you you might start with like some negligible things at the beginning of the conversation, and then you start building the force of the argument until finally you get to the finale, and you say something like, now honey, don't you think you would really enjoy watching those food shows on an 85-inch 4K television? That's what Jacob's doing here, and it's actually a very wise thing that he's doing. 
So he's, he started his spiritual leadership very well. He's not coming to his wives and to his family and saying, all right, everybody, God met with me, get on board, let's go. Actually, he's coming to them in sort of a humble way, asking them for their permission uh, for him to leave. And that's a smart thing to do, because for 20 years, Jacob has not read. And you might recall that we do not have a single prayer of Jacob's on record while in Adoniram. He does not appear to have been much of a spiritual man by any stretch of the imagination. The only words that we have coming out of his mouth at this point are explosions of anger on Rachel and explosions of frustration upon Laban. So this is not a man whose wives are accustomed to him bringing to them spiritual thoughts, and they respond accordingly. Jacob's wives respond in verses 14 through 16 like wives who are unaccustomed to hearing their wives, their husbands talk this way. So he says, ladies, God has given us a lot of stuff. In fact, God appeared to me in a dream. He said, take all the speckled and spotted and striped and mottled lambs and goats, and that's how I'll build your wealth. And so I started to do that. He tells them God is the one who has enriched them. And he says, God appeared to me last night, and it's time for us to go back home. And like I said, they are unaccustomed to hearing Jacob speak this way. So what's their initial response? They run right back to the material. They're angry with their father, because Laban is just a free, <coughs> old common Laban is a man who has been taking advantage of them. They even accuse their dad of stealing from them. Now, commentators have disagreed with what that means that he's been stealing from them. Uh, but since Jacob was living with them there, and since they were daughters, evidently they were entitled to something legally. So whatever the daughters thought they had coming to them, Laban had squandered it. And the girls came at their minds off the money. They say, it's gone. What inheritance do we have here? What do we have um, here anyway? So whatever God has told you to do, we will do. So I'm sure at this point, Jacob was, that was music to his ears. Um, I'm sure he was probably dreading that conversation, thinking that they say, yeah, we family? We have roots here. But no, they say, whatever God has told you to do, go ahead and do. So I'm, I'm guessing that Jacob was thinking, wow, God, this is, this is even more confirmation for you of, of what you're telling me to do. So a takeaway from this scene number two, I would say, is that God's people must be sure they're acting in good faith. How do we see God and Jacob acting in good faith here? Well, throughout his 20 years there, he indeed kept his end of the bargain with Laban. And he had, he had a good character. Even though he had been cheated on multiple occasions, he worked hard for Laban and served him faithfully. His wives did not point a finger at Jacob and accuse him of acting in bad faith towards her father. And that was important, especially now when Jacob was asking them to leave home with them. It's important that we walk with integrity as believers so that when circumstances arise where we may need to ask others to trust us, but they don't look at our character as a little kid that built his house with straw. I think of a, um, a situation where, I forget, we were going to um, use some contractor or something to do something on our house, and it was a, a Christian business, and I remember talking to someone about it, um, at a church we were going to at the time, and someone said, you don't want to use them. And then he told the whole story about this Christian contractor that 
rip them off. And that, that's the kind of thing that, you know, is really just devastating. I mean, it, it might happen 20 years ago, but that's the only thing that they remember about that person. So the third scene here involves Jacob and his family's flight. So it doesn't tell us exactly how much time there was between Jacob's dream and when he took off, but it probably wasn't a very long amount of time. And just to be clear here, we're not talking about packing for a weekend getaway, which probably takes us, you know, half a day. Uh, there obviously had to be some planning and forethought, but it had taken a many hundred mile journey with flocks and herds and wives and children, which included crossing the Euphrates River. Uh, what we do know is that Jacob waits for Laban's peak moment of vulnerability. In verse 20, we're told that Laban was away shearing his sheep. Okay, and obviously Laban had a pretty large flock. I, I looked up a YouTube video this week to see how, you know, sheep were shorn, uh, you know, manually. I don't know how they do it today, no idea, but um, uh, I, there was this one video from Australia. Actually, the guy did it in about five minutes, okay? Now, I don't know if they had the same kind of clippers back then, but then I saw another one from a reenactment in Williamsburg where they were, you know, at, well, no, not Williamsburg, it was Mount Vernon. So it was like a George Washington's homestead. And George Washington evidently actually had a lot of sheep. And they had clippers that were made from the same company that, that George Washington even used back then, it's still in business. Um, but it took them about 20 minutes to do one sheep. So they wanted to steal that, I guess, three <laughs> actors. Um, but either way, needless to say, uh, it would take a while. You can imagine the lady would be away for a while. Uh, and so Laban goes away, and Jacob waits for that key moment. Uh, he's got a head start on Laban. And uh, Laban is a few days' journey away, and he knew that it would also take time to do the sheep journey. So um, we find out that it takes three days for Laban to even get word that Jacob is on the move. Um, so he was at least that far away from, from where they started. Um, and Jacob was on the move trying to put as much ground between him and Laban as he possibly could. Uh, by my calculations of Gilead being about 300 miles from the Euphrates River, and not knowing where they started from the Euphrates River, Jacob is covering upwards of 30 to 40 miles a day on average. And this is with flocks and herds and women and children. So to take a journey like that, there's testimony to the strength of the flock that God had given him. Otherwise, the animals would have been dropping off left and right. But I don't want us to miss that in the process of leaving, Rachel stole something. I say something because we're not exactly sure what she sold. And if you look at verse 19, it says that Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And then in verses 30 through 35, Laban shows up and says, Why did you steal my household gods? Jacob says, No one stole them. So Laban goes looking through all of the stuff. He begins with everybody but Rachel, and he ends up in her tent. And Rachel takes those household items, throws them into a camel's knapsack, sits on them, and says, Father, Father, please forgive me. I can't stand up. It's my time of the month. And so Laban doesn't make her stand up. Well, what exactly was it that Rachel stole? Because what she stole and why she stole them go together. 
the Hebrew word for what she stole is the word teraphim. Um, all I can say is people have spent a lot of time writing and debating about these teraphim, and people have written whole books about just the teraphim, which I don't know whether people do that much time to do that kind of thing. Um, the ESV here translated to household gods. Um, I'll just share three viewpoints. One viewpoint is that the person who has possession of these items has title to the inheritance of the estate. So if this were the case, Rachel would have been stealing the title to lay and stuff. Um, that's very possible. Although Rachel herself admitted that there was nothing left to inherit in her father's house, so she would have been stealing the title to something that had very little value. And furthermore, Jacob was taking her about 500 miles away from home, so I don't know how she was thinking that she'd ever go back to claim the inheritance. Others have concluded that Rachel at this point was still a pagan, and she stole them because she was infatuated with idolatry. That's also possible, but by sitting on them during her menstrual cycle, even by pagan standards, she did not show them much respect. Finally, other commentators believe she stole them out of just good old-fashioned spite. Uh, dad, the business monitor, or should have been mine, belonged to me, as worthless as I believe these titles are, I'm going to take these on my way out the door just to look them in the eye. Um, you know which one I think it was? I don't know. <laughs> but I think we can learn something from the scene of the three. If Rachel was stealing the idols because she actually believed in that, then she was in essence undermining God's leadership through Jacob by wanting to hold on to them as a form of security. I know that can be a temptation, especially for wives when husbands who maybe have not demonstrated a solid track record of leadership in the home decide to start leading and you want to hold on to some form of security because you're not sure how long it's going to last or, you know. Even if Rachel sold them out of spite and undermined Jacob's leadership, and that if Laban had found them, Jacob's integrity would have toppled like a house of cards, and he would have been in a mess of a jam since he vowed that whoever stole them would be put to death. Um, fortunately, in this story, since the command of Jacob to return home was commanded by God himself, God's protection guaranteed his safety. And so even though Rachel's foolish act of stealing Lady Tashel God's threatened, the sidetrack God's protection of his people, God did not let it happen. In a few chapters from now, when we get to Genesis 35, we're going to see that Jacob actually makes a pronouncement for everyone in his household to put away foreign gods. And it never addresses this, but I wonder if Jacob found out from Rachel the truth about the God she stole from Laban at that time, or maybe she didn't. Servants that you know, for those in the um, Well, the fourth scene revolves around Laban's pursuit. Now, based on how fast Jacob was moving, you had to think that he had in his mind that Laban was not going to let him go stop free. Um, it's pretty clear that he must have been thinking that Laban was going to come after him. Um, and he was right. But it was no small task for Laban and his men to catch up with Jacob. It says that it took three days before Laban was told that Jacob had fled, and then it took him and his men seven days of hard riding to run him down. So that raises the question, 
should Jacob have handled the situation differently? On the one hand, Jacob had that been thinking, if he saw Laban's agreement to leave, probably, the old comment, Laban would have maybe found another sound reason for him to stay and talk to him to stay. So Jacob decided to run away without a word. And what do we see when Laban catches up to Jacob? Laban takes Jacob to task, quite hypocritically, by the way. He says, Jacob, why did you go? I would have thrown parties for you. I was trying to read it that way when I read it, but that's really like, I would have thrown parties for you. Why didn't you let me send you off with string instruments and tambourines and feasts? Why didn't you let me kiss my grandchildren? Jacob, you have done something very foolish. So it's true from our vantage point that God had Jacob's back. We know that in hindsight. And we, we can look at the situation and say that Jacob could have gone to Laban and said, Laban, it's time for me to go home. And because God was in it, Laban would have let Jacob go. So we know that God had Jacob covered. But there's also a sense that Jacob was right about Laban. Laban said, Jacob, why did you run so fast? And Jacob said, I was afraid that you would do me harm. And you know what Laban's response was? It wasn't my power to blame those. He said, yeah, it is in my power to do you harm. But God appeared to me in a dream last night and told me I'm not supposed to say anything. You know, God appears later and tells him not to say anything good or bad. But Laban just can't help it, as we'll see in our next scene. He just can't bring himself to let Jacob go scot-free without saving face. So I think that the takeaway in scene four is that ultimately Jacob was right. Could he handle it better? Sure. But I think the takeaway is this, that sin is messy. Relationships are messy when sin is involved. And breaking from sin almost always causes collateral damage. And the world will come to you with hypocritical sensitivities and say, as a good Christian, you should have handled this better. Well, maybe so. But don't be surprised when attempting to break away from sinful patterns and habits, the people associated with those sinful patterns and habits don't come and make your heels. A person in my life, whom I would have liked to earn the respect of, but don't think I ever did, who seemed to feel threatened by my faith, in Jesus Christ would use any opportunity when something appeared by their standards to be a misstep on my part to say, if you were a good Christian, such and such. Um, so don't be surprised at the labels in your life that treat you unfairly. Just keep trusting in the Lord. The fifth scene is a confrontation between Jacob and Laban. In one sense, this is what the whole chapter has been building to. And you can just feel it. Laban's attempt to engage Laban in a judicial encounter actually backfired on him when Jacob successfully defended himself and brought his counterclaim. Here, 20 years of anger frustration on Jacob's part are going to burst out um, in a diatribe of ferocious intensity. Jacob was emboldened, you know, Laban had let the cat out of the bag if God came to him in a dream. And uh, Jacob was emboldened by God's rebuke of Laban in the dream and recognized the affirmation of God's protection. And uh, this warning by God for Laban to not speak very evil made his threat that he could do harm really an empty boast. 
So needless to say, God takes the side of Jacob in the confrontational dispute, and Jacob knew it. So I think the takeaway here from this scene is that those that are under God's protection may boldly contend for righteousness when necessary. Um, I think that some of you will be able to identify with this, but um, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in situations like this, but oftentimes, and oddly enough, they do end up happening in circumstances involving family members, just like in this case. And there have been times in our lives where we've had to speak up in awkward situations with family members because of leading our family in the ways that God would have us walk in. Um, I dare say that many of you have been in those same situations. Uh, these are times where I just from you know our experience, it's really good to get counsel from others since they are normally emotionally charged situations and it really helps to talk to fellow brothers and sisters who do not have um, the emotional stake in the game so that we, you, who are in that situation can maintain the proper perspective in order to follow Colossians 4.6 to let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Um, I know a situation where I had to confront a family member and um, before I made the phone call, I called a close friend of mine, Christian brother, and um, just talked through the whole situation, and it really helped me because I was just like, just shaking pens and needles, and, and it just really helped to calm me down and set me on the right course, and I did make the phone call, and, and um, didn't go well, but uh, but it was like the situation with Jacob and Laban. It, it needed to be done, and uh, so that's that's what the point is from this scene. The sixth and final scene is the treaty and Laban's return home. So after Jess being put in his place by Jacob, Laban, in true classic common fashion manages to completely ignore the truth that Jacob leveled against him and deflects criticism. And this, you know, might be typical. This is kind of what happened in my phone conversation. This is, you know, Laban is not a believer, and this is how he responds. So with a quick, I haven't stolen anything from you, Jacob, because I am it all anyway. Laban attempts to save face by proposing a preposterous treaty was not necessary. And so Laban instigated this treaty, suggesting in his words in front of everybody that he just been, you know, berated and the truth came out from Jacob, um, that Jacob was the slippery one to watch, right? And uh, that Laban should insist that Jacob should not marry any extra wives is laughable when he himself had inflicted bigamy on Jacob in the first place. Nor had Jacob any intention of invading Laban's territory. And um, yeah, you see that when he says, like, let's set up this heat and I won't pass over it, and you don't pass over it to do harm. 
you know, as if like he's implying that Jake, Jacob's going to come over and come back. And Jacob had no intention of returning to Laban's territory. He was intent on returning to Canaan. Um, but the covenant appeased Laban, and so I think Jacob just kind of bit his tongue and accepted it, and they parted peaceably. Uh, you see right through what Laban was doing here in front of all these people. He was trying to accuse um, Jacob by implication. Um, I heard the story, that's kind of how what Laban was doing here. There was this uh, first mate on a ship with this captain, and the captain was keeping the log, and there was this kind of drinking, and it went a little bit too long. <clears throat> and uh, the next morning, the first mate, the effects of the drinking that weren't off, and so he woke up and he was still drunk. So the captain records in the log book that day, uh, the seas are calm, the sky is blue, and the first mate is drunk. So the first mate, you know, when he goes to the captain's like, please, please, can you erase that from the log book? And this is going to set me back for years, and I'll never get my own ship. The captain says, well, is it true you were drunk? And the first man says, well, yes. Um, he says, like, well, if it's true, I have to put it in the water. So the first man's like, we're mad about it. Well, a couple weeks go by, and the uh, first mate is now in charge of the water for that week. And um, so it's the next day, and uh, the uh, first mate, mate you know, logs the day, and the law book says, the skies are blue, the sea is calm, and the captain is sober. And um, the captain says, hey, why, why are you writing that in the law book? And he says, well, are you sober? He says, yeah, I'm sober every day. And he says, like, well, if it's true, I need to put it in the law book. <laughs> so that's what Laban's doing here. Um, accusation by implication. So even though this pile of rocks and treaty was not necessary, even in this, God was protecting Jacob. Do you remember the last time Jacob left his home? He did so on the run, right? He did so looking over his shoulder, right? The whole time, seeing that Esau was chasing him down. And there would just be this anxiety. And I don't think God wanted Jacob to have that same feeling of running again this time. Always having to look over his shoulder to see if later was chasing him. And um, so God used this instant, even this preposterous treaty that Laban had, to set up this pile of rocks. God was bringing closure to this. And so here, no matter how crooked the path was that God there, no matter how many mistakes Jacob had made, here, Jacob could always, there would always be this pile of rocks that would say, Jacob, we're good. This chapter of your life is closed. Um, you don't have to look over your shoulder anymore. Um, I've called you to move on from this chapter. And my favor is on you. You're in my will. So proceed forward. Um, and that must have been a wonderful reassurance for Jacob that God was was in this with him. So I think our team scene six takeaway, and this is really the final scene and the summary of this passage, 
is that God will always prevail. God will protect His chosen ones. The path may not be a straight line. Probably never is, really. Um, but He has a plan for each one of us, and He desires to lead each one of us in His plan to accomplish His purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this story that you, you show us, God, that you, I mean, you have our backs, God. Um, you have promised that does stuff, and that is just, that's a comfort, God. I mean, we, we know that as much as he wants to walk straight path, God, that Absolutely, we're going to fall, we're going to get back up, we're going to go right, we're going to go left, but, um, but God, we know that you will prevail. And um, Lord, let's pray that you would, uh, and, uh, each day, just um, well, the verse, God, you said, you were at work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. God, I pray that um, that is all of us for in this church family, that you would do that uh, each and every day. We have work in us, but we don't want to hear the pleasure and we would experience that and, um, and just see you do that. Um, in Jesus' name.